don't change our behaviour. By the year 2050, there's going to be more plastic in the ocean than fish. So do we want a system of anarchy? And that's what we probably have at the moment. And they estimate that there's about 40.3 million people in some form of modern slavery. There is no single industry not touched by this issue. Definitely racists have been very good at using the internet. There's been a shift in thinking about who counts as a terrorist and there are currently terrorist laws being used against white nationalists. Where people's lives are being destroyed, that to me is enough to say something needs to be done here. Hi there, I'm Susan Carlin and welcome to What Happens Next, where we take a closer look at some of the sticky issues facing the world. And the concern about the direction of our nation is very, very strong. At the end of the day, you can either be a Muslim or an Australian. It must be either or because the two do not correlate and do not correspond. Today, we'll talk to an expert in terrorism and extremism who's going to help us understand the drivers behind these ideologies and what can be done to change it. Pete Lentini is an Associate Professor of Politics and International Relations at Monash University, and he heads up the Global Terrorism Research Unit. He's a highly sought-after media commentator and the convener of Monash's Master of Counterterrorism Studies. I'm the founding director of the Global Terrorism Research Centre and a founding member of the uh, the Contempt Research Initiative at Monash, which stands for uh, Research Initiative for the Study of Contemporary Threats in Emerging Movements in Politics and Theology. Pete Lantini, welcome to the show. Oh, thanks, Susan. All right, Pete. When we think about right-wing extremism, I want you to paint a picture for me If we continue on with the way that we're handling right-wing extremism, what could the world look like if we don't change anything? Well, I guess some of the ways that we might want to think about is actually how are we handling it and uh, are we handling it properly and and maybe what can we do better? And I think, you know, if we look in the sense of are we taking it very seriously? Uh, I think on a couple of levels, we might have to say certainly not as seriously as we should. One of the main drivers of, uh, of, of right-wing extremism largely has to deal with this fear of, uh, of a loss of status, you know, generally. And also, I think what's really big is this, this fear of some type of extinction. Okay, so whether that be the uh, the extinction of of the white race, um, and also I think maybe some elements of of, of cultural uh, heritage, and also what would be considered to be you know some forms of privilege. So I think when if we don't really stop and try to take those things very very seriously, I think that uh, we run the risk of of trivializing some of their politics as aberrant as they may be. Okay, so one of the things I think that really um, is potentially problematic is the sense that when we hear about right wing extremism, uh, automatically there are finger pointing. Uh, there's uh, there's demonizing of, of those particular people, and I think again I don't want to um, you know downplay the sense that racism is aberrant and should not be tolerant. Uh, various forms of uh, of exclusionary politics in the same boat. 
But I think what's significant is that, uh, and I think what the government does right, say, with respect to uh, to Islamist politics, is that when um, word comes out that uh, there's, you know, uh, usually a young male in these types of circumstances, has started to uh, take on radical viewpoints, moving towards extremist viewpoints. Um, you know, there's a system that gets put in place for support for these types of people. Um, and, and again, that's the right thing to do. Unfortunately, we don't have the same types of systems in place yet for, again, predominantly young men who might be going through these types of, uh, of experiences. Uh, there's, there's no support there. They feel as if their, uh, their worldview is, uh, is, is not um, you know, comprehended, it's denigrated, etc. And I think one of the things that we have to really, really do is acknowledge that uh, for them, that loss of whether it be social status, their fear that um, you know, the, the white race is becoming extinct, they're losing the Australia that they believe in, to them, that's as serious as the way that, you know, for instance, uh, Muslims in Birmingham felt about the publication of the Satanic Verses and how that they felt that that was really undercutting all of that stuff that they held sacred. So I think that one of the things that's really significant is that we're not trying to identify uh, what's sacred to those people. Okay, so that's one of the things where you can lose stuff. Mm -hmm. But by the same token, um, in not being vigilant against some of the, the racism that comes forward, and here I'm talking about, in many ways, the um, uh, the the politicians at at national level when when they don't really stand up against this stuff, then you create a circumstance whereby there's this atmosphere that almost makes it feel like it's permissive to hold these types of uh, of aberrant viewpoints, and that to a certain extent may give some people who have uh, you know these types of uh, aberrant viewpoints, but might just be misguided people who with uh, some conversation you might be able to swing them round. Uh, it creates a circumstance where it makes it look like those types of viewpoints are valid and can be encouraged. Right. So it's actually a really delicate dance where you acknowledge the grievances that these young men, like you said, mostly young men, uh, might have without endorsing them. I imagine that's a, a pretty delicate dance. And whether that's with right-wing extremism, right-wing extremists, or like you said, um, Islamist extremists, mm-hmm. finding that balance. How, how do you do that? Well, this is one of the things that um, I think within the context of, uh, of Islamist extremism, there have been some bona fide efforts on, uh, a number, by a number of different stakeholders to take this stuff very, very seriously. Uh, we're starting to see that, regrettably, it took something like uh, the Christchurch attack for people to start taking seriously the threat of, uh, of right-wing extremists. And uh, this is despite the fact that uh, all of the studies of uh, of liberal democratic countries tend to reinforce that since 9-11, uh, although Islamists have certainly generated the most lethal terrorist attacks with the highest body counts, we see that the most frequent uh, amounts of, uh, of terrorist attacks have actually been by those on the extreme right. Uh, there really hasn't been the development of uh, of programs uh, in this country, despite the fact that you know they're certainly moving in that way, and that there have been a couple of programs that have started to to disengage people from the extreme right uh, that you have had with the um, with. with uh, within the uh, the Islamist context. One of the things that have been some of the successes of, of the Islamist programs has been that uh, you've had 
especially if you look at Indonesia, Singapore, etc., those people who previously were involved in extremism and in some cases terrorist attacks, they've renounced and they've kind of worked with uh, a lot of the civil society organizations, state groups to help work into programs on uh, getting other people to disengage. And these people have the street credibility uh, because they're, you know, they don't necessarily pick on people for uh, having viewpoints where they want to see various types of political changes. However, they argue very, very strongly against taking violent approaches. Now, if we switch this within the, uh, the extreme right circumstances in Australia, then we see that we have a complete uh, void of, of former right-wing extremists uh, that are available to engage in this type of uh, activity. Uh, it's been acknowledged that some of the people who have been high-profile individuals within this right-wing extremist space have not really been willing to, uh, to engage in this stuff. And I guess the other thing that's really significant is that the sites of radicalization for uh, Islamist extremism and also right-wing extremism are very, very different. There's, there's certainly some merit in trying to get some types of uh, civics programs, things like that, working through the high school system. Um, but by the same token, uh, you know that might have worked with, the, excuse me, that might have worked with the, in, within the context of Islamism, and you also have, uh, you know, whole community that can basically, you know, put people back on the straight and narrow. You have a very, very different situation with, with right-wing extremism because um, what we've been seeing is that many of those people who are moving into right-wing extremism uh, are somewhat young, somewhat older, excuse me. Um, so what types of institutions can you work with there? They come from a variety of different types of, uh, of ethnic groups and also religious or, or non-religious backgrounds. So in those respects, it's, it's very, very difficult to, uh, to try and establish some type of dialogue where you can actually get that balance. Like you said, they don't have a community around them in the same way that maybe uh, Islamist extremists do. So can that be replicated in a elsewhere or are there other tips or things, success stories that research is suggesting actually this should be one thing we should be doing with right-wing extremists? For, for those people pursuing such a, such a track, uh, there are more opportunities for them to actually become involved in what might be considered to be mainstream actions for political change, joining political parties, forming political parties, things to that effect. You see a lot of those people who have radical tendencies, uh, they might actually become involved in some of the, uh, the more neo-populist or radical right political parties that, that, that have been cropping up uh, over the last uh, 20 years or so. And, and again, we've also had you know, a, a long history of, of different types of established uh, right-wing radical and extremist parties in this country going back you know, certainly well into the, uh, into the previous century. The radical shift into that mainstream uh, political arena brings with it its own challenges, though, doesn't it? When we have politicians like some of the ones we might have in Australia now saying some pretty confronting or unpleasant things about racial or religious minorities in the country, or when we see mm -hmm. um, nonviolent, totally uh, politically legitimate, but not great to see protests uh, happening in Australia with 
big billboards or, or signs people carrying about who they do and don't want in this country. Those mm-hmm. are all legal. They're all absolutely operating within the recognised political system we have in Australia. But does that have a bleed-on effect into the right-wing extremists? Do, does the existence of these right-wing radical ideas in a legitimate arena then give legitimacy to the extremists as well? I guess one of the ways that you can test that is uh, the results. And I think one of the things that really stands out is the sense that, um, especially since about 2013, when the Rise Up Australia Party stood, we see that, um, you know, that despite the fact that they might have, uh, you know, contested a a wide range of, uh, of seats across the country and things like that, in most circumstances, they actually didn't get, um, you know, more votes than the, uh, than invalid votes. I think there were only uh, maybe uh, like in the, uh, in the 2013 and 2016 elections, for instance, I think there were only a couple of instances where they actually got more votes than the um than invalid votes in the actual electorates. And, uh, you know, there's been some research which suggests that, well, in many cases, what you have is that uh, right-wing radical and in some cases extremist parties, they don't really drive uh, beyond the neighborhood level. So looked at some of the, the voting data at like uh, individual voting booths and stuff like that. And still, uh, even at that level, the, uh, the votes against uh, certainly um, worked against them. So, in to, so to a certain extent, this kind of um, it's uh, it, it's really a double-edged sword when we're talking about how the the impact on legitimacy, because if you have a situation where they're running, and uh, you know they have to deal with the whole uh, you know broad type of uh, you know range of ideas that they have to compete against, if they get you know very very few votes, then to a certain extent um, you know it reinforces to some that okay this might not be the way to go. We're blocking the wrong type or we're backing the wrong types of horses. And so, um, you know, that doesn't go forward because the people who are actually going to vote for these types of candidates, uh, largely because there's been a number of studies that have, uh, that have come out. And uh, certainly there was an article, I think, in The, uh, in the Guardian a, a few months back, which talked about one of the reasons why the, um, the radical right in, uh, in Australia is, is not so popular uh, is because basically the uh, the coalition picks up all of its ideas. So to a certain extent, regrettably, that has now become mainstream policy right. in so some circumstances. Yeah, it's, so it's almost becoming normalized. Yeah, and similarly, and I guess you know, it's if we look, say, for instance, in an American context, um, the uh, the the agenda that the Repu- some of the Republicans have picked up is basically the agenda that David Duke has been advocating since the late 1980s. Mm. This stuff is now mainstreamed. So in some cases, you've got situations where those types of parties, you know, they they tank out because of the legitimacy. And the other type of thing that you might have to worry about, and is and in some cases, you know, people get disillusioned and you know, disengage uh, from, you know, those types of beliefs after that, thinking it's basically a wasted vote. Uh, In some cases, it reinforces the correctness of some of these people's viewpoints and how they're really, you know, the uh, some type of a vanguard. And they're the only, you know, types of people who know the truth. And I think if we look at one of the the bedrocks right now of, in many cases, radical right and extreme right policies, conspiracy theory and persecution 
especially persecution of, of of white people is really front and center. And you know, I never thought that uh, you know, in teaching you know political science in um, in the twenty first century, that that you know, I'd actually have to start including uh, components and modules on the importance of conspiracy theory in mainstream U.S. and you know Russian and you know some other types of uh, countries' politics, and also that that it uh, exists in um, you know many. Uh, Australian context as well. We do have concerns about elements within the Australian society at the moment, in particular, some of those people who have been involved in criminal activity. It is time we deal with our failed immigration policy, which has in culturally separate communities established themselves near our major cities, funded by the political our welfare class, system. Being out of touch with the hopes and aspirations of the Australian people. When, you, when the far right keeps stretching further right, does it, it brings the rest of the, the centre with it, which shifts further right. We can't deny now that they say these things and the Scanlon Foundation has shown for many years consistently that anti-Muslim sentiment in Australia is sitting consistently at 40%. Mm-hmm. So these ideas are being absorbed. What does that, what does that do to a nation? Well, again, I think this is one of the, the reasons why I think we're seeing uh, you know, across the board, uh, you know, certainly, if not in office, then certainly influential uh, neo-populist type uh, uh, politicians. Uh, you, you've got situations where they weave those types of aberrant types of uh, policies and rhetoric into a broader narrative, which also touches upon certain elements of uh, you know economic decline for certain people, uh, this uh, this kind of politics of nostalgia, of uh, of of the lost Australia, you know, make America great again, yeah. uh, you know, this kind of you know striving for uh, you know this um, a, a Britain that is 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 very very uh, you know different to to continental Europe, uh, you know things things that that work along along those lines there, and I think you also have. Um, other circumstances where it works into this, 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 the changing of the political discourse, because you now have a situation where um, the left had traditionally been the, uh, the guardians of civil liberties. Okay, now you've got them trying to twist around uh, debates about aspects of freedom of speech. Mm, Okay, mm. Um, I've actually never heard anybody who critiqued political correctness who actually contributed anything substantial to to uh, to modern day political discourse. You know, uh, it's basically just, um, you know, these people who who are pissed off because they can't use abusive language anymore. Okay, Uh, it's not, you know, to generate some type of of constructive arguments about things. They want to be able to persecute in their speech. And so when you've got this kind of, um, you know, this combination of of, of people feeling feeling threatened, you know, uh, within the context of international security systems, they feel that um, that they're relying on on what would be considered to be stigmatized knowledge uh, within the context of, uh, you know, the, the levels of, of, of threat that different types of social groups might be, uh, you know, posing towards them. And then this combination of, uh, you know, feeling of we're losing our rights, we're losing our heritage and stuff like that. This kind of creates that 
type of um, that type of environment where you do have that substantial shift to the right, which makes you know these types of uh, of narratives really fall you know which what might might have been considered to be uh, you know radical or extreme uh, say maybe fifteen twenty years ago in certain contexts. That's now considered to be things that uh, that the heartland wants to see defended and protected. So, what do we do? Like, is censorship the the solution? Should we ban these online forums where right wing extremists congregate? Well, what What do you think we should do? Look, I actually think that um, that can be pretty problematic because one of the things that really has kept most of most people from not becoming extremists is when you actually read what some of these extremists have to say. Hmm. And, you know, that's one of the things that, uh, you know, in the, in the opinion of, excuse me, in the marketplace of ideas, uh, most of these people's uh, arguments cannot hold up. And that's why most of the people move away from them. The other thing to bear in mind is that, um, Given proper media literacy, and also if um, you know there, there's more encouragement for uh, for specialists and, and and key stakeholders to, to to make more vital contributions to the public sphere, uh, not just in um, you know in, in say specialist journals and uh, reports and stuff like that. Uh, if these types of people can be engaged, you know, much more broadly, then there's a possibility that these types of uh, ideologies can be discussed in uh, in a much more, you know, sensible, more detailed, you know, way. Because if people are getting their ideas about um, of these things through social media, responding to it on social media, regrettably, especially if they go on Twitter, you don't have much space in which to do this. Okay, mm-hmm. um, but by the same token, um, if you have circumstances where um, you know both sides can actually have uh, a, a little bit more uh, you know time to uh, you know express ideas then I think these these types of things uh, can you know they, the ideas can actually be debated and uh, spoken about much much more uh, much much more clearly uh, I also think that one of the things that is important in a democracy is that citizens need to be well informed. And if all this stuff starts to get banned, citizens are not going to be informed about what these groups are about. And if that's the situation, two things happen. One, okay, you drive the discourse underground and in places in the dark web, and um, you've got you create a situation where these types of people are not dealing with anybody outside of their own types of peer groups. And that's really where we start to see problems when when um, you you move from radicalism to extremism, extremism into terrorism, because there's nobody there to challenge your viewpoints effectively. Okay, so keeping things out in the open still provides those mechanisms for uh, for education, but most importantly for uh, for challenge. Okay, mm-hmm. the other thing that that does is that uh, by banning, you automatically start giving these groups some type of a modest status. Mm-hmm. Okay, and when people can start operating from a position of victimhood, that gives them a sense of legitimacy, and that gives them an extra sense of coherence to their narrative, and that. 
also makes it look like uh, they're the ones who are, you know, defending democracy. Uh, that the the state or special interest groups are, uh, are beating up on them unjustly. We're the only ones who can stand up. Things to that effect. So that type of censorship, you know, uh, is is you know uh, is problematic in driving that as well. Now, that said, it doesn't mean that everything should come through because there are certain things that certainly should not be able to come through. Anything that talks about aspects of operations, how to construct weapons, uh, you know, certainly stuff that uh, would be considered to be things that would incite. Those types of things naturally have to be, uh, you know, addressed within, you know, current uh, censorship laws and things to that effect. But by the same token, when we don't inform citizens about what these groups are about, then they lose, you know, their their rights to uh, to find out about them, and that again, I think, is uh, is regressive within the context of uh, of a liberal democracy where you need educated people. Pete, that was all very interesting. Some absolutely fascinating food for thought. Thank you so much, Pete. No, thanks for that, Susan. Incredible insights from Pete on how these movements grow and gain momentum and what's really driving the extremists in our midst. Special thanks to Pete Lentini for coming on the show. In our next episode, we'll find out what individuals can do or say when they see or experience extremist attitudes or ideologies in their everyday lives. Do we call out that behaviour or do we starve it of oxygen? The strategies from our behaviour change expert might surprise you. I'll see you on the next episode of What Happens Next.